All right, gentlemen. All right, if I could have your attention, uh, we are going to get started here in just a moment. So if those of you who are at the, the entryways, if you could holler out to the guys who are still enjoying the, the patio and, and the coffee, that uh, we'll get started here. We have a, a lot of good questions we want to ask Owen. And so we will get started here once we uh, are more or less in. Looks like, looks like we're there. Well, this has been a wonderful morning, and Owen, I, I want to begin just by again expressing our gratitude for the friendship that we have with you and you with us. Uh, thank you for finding time in your schedule to come from Arkansas to minister here this weekend. We know you've got a lot going on, I, and I don't even know how you do it all. And so that actually is one of the first questions I have for you. You're a, a husband, 16 years, a father of three children. Uh, you're a provost of a seminary. You're writing books. You have a weekly podcast. So tell us a little bit about the disciplines in your life, what that looks like, and also explain how those were developed as you went through uh, being a young man. Mm. Yeah, I would say that I'm not naturally disciplined in the way I needed to be, but God has um, worked in my life in the ways I was trying to sketch a little bit there to convince me of the need to grow out of boyishness um, and grow into manhood. So what I have learned as a husband and father and worker in God's kingdom is that if I am going to win at home, which is really my first priority, and if I'm going to get things done at work, and if I'm going to serve my church in some way, I'm going to have to be really disciplined. And um, I am not disciplined as I should be, but God has really grown me in that area. And so I try to be, it's, it all starts with spiritual discipline. I try to be up in the morning earlier than my body would like to be sometimes. I'm not a great sleeper, so I kind of, you know, try to get myself calmed down at night and get to bed and uh, then get up. In, in the morning and try to be in the Word for 20 to 30 minutes a day, and uh, that usually leads into taking the kids to, to our Christian school, and that usually leads into going to the gym, and I now do boring middle-aged man exercises like rowing. I have left behind my beloved basketball. Last summer, I tore my Achilles tendon. Thank you for the sympathy. I appreciate that, and uh, so that's kind of gone. Um, uh, the, the athletic community is missing me greatly, I, I assure you. And um, that then get, bleeds into work, and there's a lot of things to do, of course, for work and writing a book. And I try when I'm writing to be very, people think about writing, and there's all these websites about writing and, ah, the muse of writing. And it's like, I don't approach writing that way. I approach it like put on a hard hat and go to work and sit in that chair for two to three hours until there's 2,000 words on the screen and just do it day after day after day, often when your brain doesn't feel like doing it, and on it goes, and then get home at a good time trying to and, uh, you know, usually catch my breath, uh, and then play basketball with my son, family dinner, devotions some nights, Narnia some nights, HGTV or Food Network shows that the girls like primarily some nights, and there you go. It's a full day, but, um, but if, if you have, in all seriousness, if, if God has saved you and transformed you, not in you, good from you, but God working in you, then you're regularly 
pursuing discipline and repenting of the failure to be disciplined, and, and then God builds in habits and helps you grow, and, and, um, and it's a great joy. Then, then it becomes fun. Then you gamify your life, kind of. I'm sure you, you're very busy, too, and doing a lot of meaningful ministry and work, and so you're like, ah, can I squeeze this workout in to care for my body? Can I meet with this student? Can I get these words written? And uh, so life, you can approach it, approach it fundamentally not from a grim perspective, but a joyful perspective. Yeah, there's that promise from 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that anything that's done in the Lord is not in vain, and that's what gives uh, work in all its different measures, hopefulness when we do it in the Lord. Amen. So that's a, a great testimony to that. Now, you've, uh, you've written a lot about masculinity, biblical manhood, what that looks like, uh, according to God's creative plan, and you take a lot of heat for it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has led you in, in that direction to, uh, to, to focus on that and to be an instrument for propagating biblical manhood? What, what were some of the, the things the Lord used to put that on your heart? Yeah. I uh, interned under Mark Dever almost 20 years ago, and I, that was where I started in D.C. hearing some things about biblical manhood. And then I went to Southern Seminary and interned for Al Mohler. And that was really where I caught fire for manhood. Uh, his, his teaching and writing and in many ways modeling of that gave me a vision for strong biblical manhood. And there were so many godly men at, at Southern, like there would be at a TMS, so many strong godly men that I'm very thankful for. And they, um, they modeled that. Men like Bruce Ware, who's now my father-in-law, and uh, Tom Nettles, and Steve Wellam, and many men I could mention who um, gave me a vision for strong, convictional, but also gracious ministry. And um, that fired me up. And then, then I was starting to learn how to observe the culture from Moeller uh, and reading Francis Schaeffer and Carl Henry and these voices who engaged culture. And I was like, I want to engage culture. This is, I love engaging culture. And so, you know, there's a Tide commercial that comes on in, I don't know, 2009, and the guy's folding laundry and talks about how he's a dad mom. And I'm like, dad mom? What is that? And uh, so I, I write a blog about that, and that kind of goes viral. And, 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 and then uh, Randy Stinson at the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and Wayne Grudem and some others asked me to become the executive director of CBMW in 2012, out of the blue. And so I lead CBMW and then become president of it. And we had Dr. MacArthur speak at our, our conference in 2016, I think it was, which was such an amazing honor to me. He's such a man I look up to then and so much now, and my respect for him has only increased with time. And so God has let me be a small voice in that world of manhood and womanhood. And I, I love... I saw God make me come alive as a man, uh, not just a Christian, but as a Christian man. And I pray that I can help other men find the dignity and nobility and excitement of being a God-centered man. You speak of engaging in the culture, specifically over this issue and other issues as well. But on this issue of, of biblical manhood, uh, of course, the world is going to throw its fiery darts but uh, you've received a lot of fire from the evangelical professing church as well. 
What, are, what have been some of the more surprising things that have, have really shocked you or concerned you as you, um, as you consider the direction where the evangelical church here in the West, in the United States in particular, where it's all going with respect to this issue? How much time do we have? Um, I would say that the central sorrow of the last five years has been watching many godly men I looked up to and who shaped me and who I respected, whether up close or from afar, basically seem to adopt kind of a quiet posture. And I've been really troubled by seeing the church, at least in different sectors, think that, seem to think that if it is just nice, as I was talking about briefly, that the world will then call the dogs off and the problems will resolve, and, uh, you know, we can just get along with Caesar, and wokeness will, if we're just sort of nice, wokeness will go away, we'll have hard and honest conversations, and that will solve it. And what I have seen, I think, is a failure of manhood in the last five years, where so many guns that were strong in a good way and loud and helping the church and giving vision and wisdom and clarity and direction have gone quiet in the last five years or two years or whatever it may be. And we, we as the church can't make evil be nice. So that's impossible. But what we can do is, by God's grace, speak and act in evil days and God in Scripture is showing us in the Old Testament throughout and all throughout the New Testament as well, if Christians will be courageous by His grace, and especially if men will lead out in courage, then He will bless that. Like we know, the Bible tells us what God will bless. We know what He'll bless. And so much of what He has chosen to bless, the Father is courageous proclamation of Christ, whether from somebody who's formally in ministry or or a sold-out Christian who's not in formal ministry. And yet, we've had so little of that model the last few years, which is really a living tragedy. And I'm not the solution to the problem, but I'm trying in my tiny little corner of things to be a bold voice as best I can. And it it does involve, sorry, it does involve a lot of heat. The voice, the watchmen on the wall have shrunk in numbers which means the enemy is pouring fire upon the wall, which means there's more fire being taken and fewer guys to take it. But I am resolved to take whatever fire I need to take, and um, the name of Jesus Christ is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so uh, I don't want to be attacked online or elsewhere, but if that is the cost of following my Lord, if that is the cross upon my back, then so be it. Yeah, and you are a, a wonderful example to, to us in that, in, in how you have, uh, you continue to stand firm in the faith and advocate the truth, and uh, at the same time uh, receive a lot of, of, of gunfire for that. So keep standing strong, and, and we take much encouragement in your example in that. Uh, some of the other questions now that I want to get to that have been submitted over the last couple of hours here this morning uh, have to do really with, with some great questions related to the church. And I'll start off with this one because it is such a pertinent question for today. Uh, because of the 
the the COVID pandemic, the the idea of a Zoom church just exploded, and uh, now you have some churches that have even are just going virtual, uh, and and you have a lot of Christians even today saying they're they're just going to use that as their general practice now, just stay home and watch it online. In fact, we even say this, one of the reasons why we're not live streaming this right now is because as we talk about the church, we, we wanted this to be for the men who are here in person. There's something special about that, and the whole Zoom culture that has developed has really undermined uh, the biblical purpose for the church. Now, coming back to the question here is, in your words, how would you respond to the person who says, I, I can worship Christ in the quietness of my home watching a TV screen? How do you respond to that person? And how do you give advice to those who may know of such people uh, who are a little hesitant or very hesitant to come back into the public gathering of the saints? God uses video. God has used the web and the internet tremendously. I know this this church's services in the lockdown period, especially some places in the world are still locked down tragically, including our brothers in Canada, free Canada, um, depose tyranny, please, God. Um, so I know that um, lots of people are strengthened by online offerings, and I give thanks to God for that. Um, but fundamentally, uh, Zoom or online services for all Christians who can physically gather, carefully chosen phrase, is not an option. Um, that's not extra credit if you come. That's you living out obedience to a command. Hebrews 10.25 has no asterisk on it. There is no qualification to do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And of course, um, Christians in the first century Greco-Roman world would have had no category for some kind of assembly that was not bodily assembly, right? Gathering that is not bodily gathering. So, if somebody is in a compromised health condition, uh, they, they may well tune in on the live stream. Um, before, well before live streams, when I was growing up in Maine, my father, who was a forester, he walked the woods of Maine for a living, a born-again believer, the only Christian on his entire side of the family to this day, um, and he's in his 70s. Um, so pray for my father's family, the Strand family, if you would. Um, he would take, he was a deacon of the church, and he would take communion to these two elderly ladies frequently throughout the year. And so one of my earliest memories, trying to try not to get choked up, is of my father, who was not uh, a preacher. He was not in the teaching ministry. He didn't love to preach or teach. But he loved God and loved God's people, and so he would be balancing the communion tray, you know, the tray of, of uh, wafers and the, the weird tiny little wafers, you know, and then the, the, the little cups and taking them to these elderly ladies, two elderly ladies in the nursing home in Machias, Maine, the coast of Maine where I'm from. And I just distinctly was marked by that, by my father's work to bless the body of Christ. These women could not come. They could not come. They were near death. So we have a category for that, but we must never let that be seen as normative for, for able-bodied saints. We have no asterisk on the imperative to gather, and 
um, I would say to Christians even going forward, this is probably not the last governmental test we will face in our lifetime. We are experiencing probably, it seems, something of a pause in the diabolical things that are going on in our world to shut down the church of Jesus Christ. It's a pause. There's probably more coming. What I would say in concluding this little answer is let's be ready and let's keep gathering and let's pay the price and let's know that we are honoring God by gathering even under duress and we are encouraging many saints and we are leaving a testimony for history just as this church did and other churches did. Jacob Braham's church in Eastern Canada, James Coates's church in Western Canada, Tim Stevens and others, they, they have they have passed their test. You have passed your test. And I pray that many more will pass their test in days to come. If you could summarize the, the key achievements that the church accomplishes in gathering together purposefully. What, what is accomplished by the church when it gathers physically, publicly, or perhaps even underground, but gathers together? What is being accomplished in that? What makes it so important? Why is the command in Hebrews 10, 25 not to forsake that assembling? What happens when Christians gather is they display to themselves and all who are watching that God is worth their time and God is worth their sacrifice and um, God is worth everything it takes to, for example, for a lot of us, get the family there, alive, showered, on time, with the Bibles and the notebooks to take notes in. And there's such a, there's such a testimony. You know, we, we, for example, a lot of us men, when there is the football game we want to go to uh, and our kids want to go to or the basketball game, we don't usually struggle to arrive there on time. Most guys I know don't, with the team they love, let's say, they don't usually show up, you know, with five minutes remaining in the game. Americans in particular, let's say with football, are known for even, uh, you know, the, the parking lot grill out, the, the, the tailgating, for example. I previously lived in Kansas City uh, as of last year. In Kansas City, the Chiefs, you know, there's just, it's the loudest stadium in the world in any sport. And uh, guys show up three hours before a Chiefs game. Those same guys will show up late to church, bleary-eyed, with, you know, 2.5 out of the children in the car and these sorts of things and, and assorted problems. And so part of what we need to do is just take church very seriously, not, but not from a joyless, moralistic standpoint, from the standpoint that we get to do this. Um, God has saved us and God has now called us to be a living corporate display of his glory. And then there's all sorts of good that comes when we gather, we we, are, we read the scripture publicly, we're exhorted, there's teaching, there's prayer, there's singing, it's glorious, we love it. And then we talk to all sorts of people and we're developing relationships and we're strengthened and so much more than I could even sum up. So God wants that corporate gathering. Christ died for his people. And in a sense, Christ died for the corporate gathering of the church. That's how much God loves it. And in a sense, the... Christian who just stays home is like that troublemaker in Corinth who just wanted to use his spiritual gifts for himself mm -hmm. and uh, is totally self-centered in his lifestyle when he could be together with the, the body and use it for the good of the body. Yeah. 
another question here related to women in the church. Uh, at what level do you feel women are in violation of 1 Timothy 2 verse 12? Uh, the instruction there that um, women were not, Paul does not permit a woman to, to have authority or to teach a man. At uh, what level do you feel women are in violation of that text when they are in front of a group of, of men? So, for example, leading in worship, uh, reading the scripture, hmm. those kinds of, of activities, and perhaps, you know, we could, I could develop this more and say, you know, even in a home Bible study, corporate gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, are there distinctions that can be made there? So, Answer that question in, in terms of its practical application today. There's a spectrum, I would say, to these questions. There's several questions there, from the clear to the less clear. The clearest would be a woman does not offer spiritual and theological instruction to adult men in any kind of formal sense. We have Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18 privately helping Apollos, so we have a category for sitting around a kitchen table and, you know, men and women talking about theology together, but, but um, Priscilla wasn't in any formal role over Apollos. She, she, and, um, she and Aquila were really, it's, it's a little confusing to know exactly what's happening, but it's kind of evangelism slash discipleship of Apollos, and so um, that's totally valid, but what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 is that um, women are not the public teachers and shepherds and theologians of the church, and so that is first going to be in the, in the pulpit, the proclamation of the Word. It's going to be in any Sunday school settings or seminary classes, I would argue, by extension. Christians differ over something like, can a woman read Scripture? Can a woman ever pray? Can a woman be the lead vocalist? You know, there's, there's different um, approaches to that, and I would want to not anathematize brothers and sisters, necessarily over those slight differences just because we're working from the clear to the less clear. Um, it doesn't mean it, it's of no matter, but it does mean I want to always prioritize what Scripture clearly forbids or calls for. But I would say in a, in a worship service that it's ideal to have the elders of the church and, and then the men of the church secondarily be leading out in that public leadership and the reading of Scripture and the prayers I would say that's primarily the ministry of, of the eldership. It's not that there never could be a man in the congregation who would, who would preach or something or, or pray or read who's not an elder, but I think that's what God has entrusted to the elders. And then I would even say things like, we, we're, we're kind of changing things from the bottom up in evangelicalism today, where even in our seminaries, a lot of seminaries, um, we're, we're diluting the student pool and having women trained to be a teacher of the word to women, for example, um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing for a woman to learn theology, to think with her mind to God's glory. That's definitely not bad. That's glorious. Uh, and in a Titus 2 sense, women are to teach what is good. But women hold no formal office in the church. Women are not appointed sort of theologian to women or shepherd to women. What you can have if you're not careful, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a women's ministry or something, but you can create a kind of female eldership in the church even unwittingly. And so I've seen this in seminaries I've been a part of where the student body became almost mixed such that you've got men who are training for the formal office of elder, pastor, and then you've got women who are training for not a biblical office but a sort of created office of theologian or 
exhorter to women. Men are the ones who are called to teach, shepherd, lead women in the local church. Um, women do discipleship of other women, and that can expand from coffee at Starbucks all the way up to a, a group meeting where a woman is talking about homemaking and loving your husband and submitting to him, Titus 2. So we have, some, we have some freedom, I think, but we just want to watch ourselves that we're not unwittingly creating an, a new office in the church of woman theologian. Women write theology for women because if a woman writes it, it's really applicable to women. No, when, when a godly elder stands up and teaches the word, applies the word, that's the shepherding the women need, just like the men. That's good. Uh, transitioning now to some questions about the family and uh, manhood in the family, being a, a godly father, uh, and the term sometimes is complementarianism, uh, where equal yet different uh, I- I- ideas or descriptions are used, or, or biblical patriarchy. And when you use that term, biblical patriarchy, you can just hear people shriek over it. Uh, yes. You know, you just put that, I'm sure if you text that or, or put that, uh, tweet that out, <laughs> you're going to have hundreds of people calling down all kinds of curses on you for the use of that term. So define biblical patriarchy, and then I have a follow-up question to it okay. as well. So, Patriarch <clears throat> is an Old Testament word, and, it com- and so it comes from an Old Testament context where Abraham is a patriarch and Isaac is a patriarch and others are, and it, it simply means head of, head of godly family, basically, head of family, more, more simply. And so, patriarchy in our time has acquired for some some baggage where it would almost mean a kind of overlordish rule of a wife and children, where a wife is almost like a child before a husband, um, as, as some would either have it or distort it. I don't personally think we have to reach that conclusion with the term patriarch, um, because the Old Testament patriarchs, though imperfect, are not horrific men. They are godly men. Um, I, I have no trouble, though, if somebody prefers the term complementarity to patriarchy. What I would say, though, is I'm I'm not for soft complementarity. I'm against it because it ends up meaning functional egalitarianism all too much. So what I would be for is strong complementarity where men and women are each created in the image of God and thus have equal dignity and worth. One is not more equal or valuable than the other, but men are called to headship and leadership in the home, the church, and even to, to a serious degree as much as is possible in society. And patriarchy would basically be saying the same thing. So there's been a lot of change over the years, especially in recent years, where strong complementarians and patriarchal types would at least in a good number of instances basically be meaning the same thing. I'm starting to introduce into my very humble teaching ministry the term kephalism. Kephale in the Greek in the New Testament means head. So uh, if somebody has a lot of concern with the term patriarchy, I might use kephalism to indicate headship, male headship, Um, and that's not meaning that the woman's role is demeaned or of no value. It is meaning, though, that men, under the headship of Christ, Christian men are what God builds the home out of. He builds marriage off of men. He builds families off of men. He builds churches off of men. And to a serious degree, he builds societies off of men. And so, 
in an anthropological sense, men are the foundation. Christ is the chief cornerstone, but even with Peter, you have Peter saying, uh, being, being told by Christ that Peter is the rock of the church, for example. So, God has entrusted a lot to godly men. Now, using the term Catholicism or, or patriarchy or strong complementarianism, uh, obviously, you know, the, as, as you've received many times, the, the criticism is going to be more about how that can be abused. So, uh, speak for a little bit about how, not, how men are not to fall into the ditch of becoming a warlord, one who dominates and domineers and expects all the service to be done for his benefit in the home. Speak a little bit about that because undoubtedly somebody's going to think, hey, this, this is just a license for the abuse of power. Is that what you're teaching and, and how do we respond to that kind of criticism? Yeah. Well, one thing we do is we note that people today try to poison what is good. It's right to respond to what you just said, uh, and I will. But we also note that, like, if I or others who would hold to our kind of doctrine tweet, the sky is blue, you, you have people questioning that the sky is blue. So we're in a kind of post-truth culture where people just love, they think they love nuance and exceptions and qualifications, and they don't love plain truth. They almost see plain truth, even God's truth, God's convictional principial truth, as bad. Like it's almost a bad thing to just state the truth. And I think God blesses the strong, plain, gracious statement of the truth. I think that's part of why this, this pulpit has been so strong for so long, because there's been a, a clear ministry of truth. Um, we do have to be very clear that the Bible itself gives us the antidote to male abuse, male sin, female sin of various kinds, and it is God's divine design for men and women. Do you want, do you want young men to prey upon women, sexualize them, treat them terribly, misuse them, not love them, not marry them as God allows, not have children, not contribute to society? then embrace feminism, egalitarianism, and a sexualized culture. Um, do you want men to live virtuously in all of those areas? Embrace divine design. Embrace God's plan for biblical manhood. And then you don't have men being called to be some sort of overlord of their family. You have men understanding themselves as given authority and leadership and responsibility from God, and that, that doesn't, if somebody ever uses the term servant leadership, that doesn't mean you're a leader who doesn't actually lead. Uh, I don't love that term myself. Whatever you call it, you are actually called to lead, make decisions. The buck stops with you. You have oversight of your wife and your children, but never in a domineering, angry, in a sinful way, abusive way. You're using your, God has given you strength and God has given you authority and you use it for God's glory. You've mentioned already that a key uh, descriptive feature about biblical manhood is responsibility, taking responsibility as well as uh, making sacrifices. How do you cultivate that? You know, we would call that, you know, the humility. Uh, what are practical ways that men, no matter what stage they are at in life, whether they're single, married, have kids, grandkids, and so on, 
we all are working on cultivating uh, that virtue. Uh, what are some of the, the key principles that you use and that you give to other men in terms of cultivating that humility that expresses itself then later on and taking responsibility, sacrificing yourself always for the good of those that the Lord puts into your life, first and foremost, your wife, but then also your kids, your family, your extended family, and so on. Yeah, and when complementarity is practiced in a church or a home, I, I said words to this effect, you've said words to this effect, but we would never think that the church or the home, even a strong biblical one, is going to be perfect. There's going to be failures. There's failures in my leadership. Uh, there's failures in our, in our congregation. Let that be said. But fundamentally, what we are trying to cultivate is a, is a humility to think well of others and not think first about our own interests. And so, I, actually, I think the real step of maturity for a lot of us as husbands and fathers is not just to have an emanation of humble feelings to those around us, but is to, is to plan, is to take responsibility, to take ownership of the situation, and not plan in, a, in an ironclad, I could never do anything but what I want to do way, but um, to plan how we're going to be a godly family. How are we going to thrive? How are my children going to be disciplined in the Christian faith? How are we going to be committed to our local church even when it's hard and, and we're tired and there's challenges? How, how am I going to provide for this family? How am I going to protect my family spiritually? How am I going to do family devotions on you know, at least a few times a week basis? Um, all of that requires planning. And this is why it's so deadly that our society encourages men to be boys. Because one trait of boyishness, we love boys, <laughs> but one trait of boys is that as a boy, under a father, hopefully, they don't have to be the one who plans, and they don't have to take a lot of responsibility, and they have to be called that way. All of us, all boys do, not just some. So if men are encouraged to be boys, men will never take ownership, and they won't get a plan, and the family will just flounder. It's sort of like being in a meeting where no one takes ownership and leadership. Few things in life are more miserable than being in a work place meeting where there's no direction, backbone, structure, leadership, pace, right? And few things are more a blessing than being under strong, clear, gracious leadership. So, ton to say, but one skill I would say for, for all of us to develop in humility is get a plan and then go to your wife. You don't have to be scared of your wife's wisdom and godliness. God gave that woman to you to be a helper. So, when God looked at Adam, he said, he needs a helper, he needs help, and not because he's a goofball or an idiot, but because he's not self-sufficient in himself. God wanted him to be helped by Eve, and that means that Adam brings real strength to the table. Amen. And, and Eve brings blessings to the table as well. So we, we take, I take plans to my wife. We're formulating our summer plans, and I take the plans to her, and I talk them through with her, and, and she knows I'm the head, and she wants me to be the head, but she gives thoughts and counsel and advice and and some of it I incorporate and take, and some of it I may say, eh, I think we'll do it this way. But that, we're not scared as, as leaders, as heads of, of their feedback. We want their wisdom and their feedback. 
What would you say to a guy here this morning who would say, okay, I realize I've been very passive in my marriage. I've essentially abdicated my God-ordained role, and uh, I've got to go home now and change direction. So, and let's say that the, the wife has taken the reins, and, and she's now steering things, yep. and she's been doing it for a while, and uh, she just would prefer actually to keep doing that. She's seen her husband's lack of responsibility, his lack of sacrifice, and she says, I'm, gonna, I, I'm just going to keep doing things here. I'm going to keep leading. How does a man in that situation begin to change things? I think women really have two instincts. Um, they have the natural God-given instinct to want a man to lead them in a gracious, righteous way. And then because of the fall, because of Eve's real sin, they, their desire is for their husband, Genesis 3, 16 to 19, and so they want to lead. And so when God redeems a woman, He gives her that desire for her husband, let's say in the context of marriage or in the local church for men, to lead her. But in practice, that can be challenging because of a woman's sin. It's not that men are sinful and women are less sinful. Women and men are both sinners in need of God's grace. And even after being born again, women have sinned to fight, men have sinned to fight. In some evangelical pulpits, the pastor thunders and smashes the men in the jaw and leaves them quivering on the ground and he soft gloves women and indicates that they have no sin. They're just so sainted and godly, and thankfully they've come to, the, to us men and these sorts of things as my Bible almost falls. And so we don't want that kind of approach in a church. We want women to be challenged in their sin and men to be challenged in their sin, and we need to recognize in addition to a woman's innate sin, she also has been raised, at least many women in America, in an egalitarian feminist spirit. And so the man who's going back home, who sees all of this in different forms, is going to want not to come in and burn the house down uh, with strong <laughs> biblical uh, leadership and attempt at it. He's going to want to do what godly husbands have to do regularly and constantly. He's going to want to sit down in a low-key, low-stress way and talk with his wife. He's going to want to repent of his past failings. He's going to want to indicate where she has failed as well, and he's going to need to be clear about that. But he's going to take ownership first, and then he's going to want to chart a vision carefully and graciously, but also convictionally, and this may not be only one conversation, it may be a series, and he's going to want to open the Word of God and talk about how he is called to lead her and their children and their home and contribute to the church, and all these things, and, and show her from the Word of God how this conviction has developed in him, and he's going to want to pray with her in repentance, and he's going to want to lead a life of humility and conviction, and ask God to bless his home. And it's going to take, listen, it's going to take some fits and starts. It's not going to be perfect. She's not going to bat a thousand. He's not going to bat a thousand, but God will, at least in a good number of homes, not necessarily every home, we should say that, but in at least a good number of homes, God will bring renewal and grace and healing. And that even brings us back to the topic uh, that, we, that you have been preaching on, the, the need of the church, and for that, that couple to then 
come underneath the discipleship of others in the church who are providing that good model of biblical manhood and womanhood. Totally. Very, very important. Amen. Uh, a, a question related to fatherhood. Uh, how do you communicate the seriousness of sin, the reality and consequences of that sin, uh, and the reality of the devil to your young children, let's say a six-year-old, uh, who, who really doesn't need to be convinced of supernatural things. They're born with that innate reality. They know yes. supernatural realities exist. And then mm-hmm. to begin, even before that, uh, right from, uh, from birth, but to begin to explain the doctrine of depravity, of sin, the reality of Satan, He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. How do you communicate that to young children without, uh, uh, without seeing them crushed in fear and go off in a, in a direction where, where they, they just are afraid of everything in life and what's behind every bush and what could be out to get them? How do you do that the right way, age related how have you done that even in your own family the scripture says to follow up on first peter 5 8 resist the devil and he will flee from you so going back to that principle just very quickly we are being hunted but we hunt back we hunt the devil so to speak we resist him that is to say and when we resist him when we choose righteousness when we repent of that lustful instinct in our heart, lust isn't just an action, lust is of the heart first and of the mind. When we repent of that and confess it to God, we are resisting the devil and the devil flees from us. So when we teach that kind of principle, Brad, our children are learning that the devil is not God, he's not on God's level, he's a created being, he is a malevolent evil force, pure evil, but ultimately, he's not sovereign. He, he's not the Lord of heaven and earth. He's, as Luther said, God's devil. And um, if we follow the path of sin in our flesh, we will grant him power over us, tragically. But if we will live by faith and repent of our sin and trust uh, Christ as our Savior and then live by his grace for his glory, then we will have continual power over the devil. Um, I, I think what we need to do is introduce these concepts to our children, but um, always in such a way that we indicate that God is way bigger than sin, Satan, death, and hell. There's a way to be reformed, if I can use that term. There's a way to be reformed that is so focused on the law and so focused on sin that sin almost becomes, even in your pulpit, bigger than God. If that is happening in a pulpit or in a home or in a marriage or with a father and his children, if the children's sin is here and a joyful, fun, happy dad is here, that's a home way out of balance. And we need an Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 recovery because that father is almost certainly provoking his children to anger. And all of us do it. Every father does it, but there can be a calibration of the home where it's almost a continual, you kids are doing so bad, 
you're failing my standards. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, over and over and over and over again, such that a child's sin becomes bigger than, than the father's love, the earthly father's love, and the capital F father's love. And that's just a living tragedy. So, we have to watch ourselves. Some of us incline toward not providing enough oversight and reproof. Some of us incline toward offering too much of it. We have to know our weaknesses, and we have to strive to um, call our children to the good path of obedience to God and the power of Christ, um, but also enjoy our children. Um, Get on the floor and wrestle with our sons. Do tea parties with our daughters. Um, Sacrifice some money and some work time to take the family on a fun trip. Um, Cut loose. Go out to ice cream. All All the simple things we can do, even as we do the family devotions and and serious things. We've got to blend that, and we've got to know our weaknesses. Another question related to parenting, uh, the issue of modesty. And uh, obviously in our society today, in fact, it's infiltrated the church to a large degree is just the absence of modesty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Modesty in terms of speech and, uh, and modesty in terms of dress. And I know you've tackled that issue uh, received quite a bit of criticism for doing that. Give us advice as as fathers, both as it pertains to our boys and as it pertains to our daughters. How do we instill modesty? How do we keep it from being legalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we keep them understanding that, that this is something that glorifies God? And, and how do we then uh, ignore and resist all the clatter that's out there about how People want to dress whatever way is most comfortable to them, and it's all about self-expression and, you know, we're, we're free in Christ kind of idea. Yeah. I'm still myself learning in this area of fatherhood and numerous others. You're ahead of me by 10 years in this category, so I, I don't do any of what we're talking about perfectly or from a high mountain, um, but I will say what I'm trying to focus on with all three of my children, two girls and a son is um, the heart. It's not fundamentally of first importance or ultimate importance that you don't wear this or you don't say this. That matters greatly. But first what is uh, important and ultimately what is important is your heart before the Lord. Uh, And the gospel creates a modest heart and a modest mind. You don't love modesty in different forms as you should, at least in a God-centered way, before your conversion, when you are converted to Christ, congratulations. You love modesty in a God-centered way. You may not even know you do, but the Spirit is working in you. And so, we start with the heart, and I think that helps our children in discipleship of our children approach the issue. Dad and mom aren't just saying, daughter, you know, the skirt needs to be at your knees and below or something, or Son, as you start to get some muscle, you know, don't wear skin-tight shirts or whatever it may be. We're not starting with the practice. We're starting with the heart. Um, I think if we could approach modesty that way in the home but also in the church, we would not be able to press a button, beep, and make our culture perfectly modest, but we would push people in the church to see 
the beauty of modesty, the opportunity of modesty, the witnessing element of modesty. It doesn't mean that a man or a woman alike needs to wear a sackcloth and pretend they're not a man or a woman. Um, God made men to be men and look like men in a distinctive way. We put God's glory on display when we do that, 1 Corinthians 11. God made women a certain way, and He wants women to look womanly. And the womanly frame and form, let's be honest, has a certain draw to it and beauty to it that God gave her. God gave her that in part so that Adam would go, it is not good to be alone. I want her, and I want to be married to her all the time. And so God gave men that instinct. That's not an evil or wrong instinct. It can go wrong. It does. But it's also right for a young man to want marriage to the glory of God and want a wife and find her beauty intoxicating, and on and on it goes. Song of Songs celebrates this, much as it makes all of us blush a little bit when it's read in church. So, we, we're not ashamed of that. We, we want to train our girls that it's a beautiful thing to be womanly. Our boys, it's a beautiful thing to be manly. This takes a lot of hard work. It's going to be challenging in a sinful world, but if we will approach it from the heart, hopefully that can help start us right. Yeah, that's helpful. It, it doesn't just begin when they turn 13. It, it's something that, as you said, is, is instilled even before they're even thinking of their own dress and the principle of the heart and, and the modesty that flows out from that. That's very helpful. Switching gears now to uh, back to the church, a question here is, uh, what, as you look at the 21st century church, we're already 20 years into this uh, century. Uh, what have been, in your mind, perhaps two or three of the greatest achievements that you see in the church today, hmm. and then two or three of uh, the most concerning failures? And, you know, we'll limit it down to our context here, so the church in, in the United States. Okay. There's been a real emphasis in the last 20 years on God-centeredness that is tremendous, and there were many voices behind that focus, especially 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, in, including the pastor here, John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, um, many other names we could mention, and, and that God-centered vision shaped so many in my generation and continues to echo into the generation now where um, some of those figures I named or others are not on the scene or are, don't have a ton of years left, but thankfully there's a harvest of good books and good music and worship songs, many of which we sung here, and, and um, strong churches that have been formed through that strong doctrine. So praise God for that, for the recovery of God-centeredness. Very simply, at the simplest level, I must decrease and God must increase. I'm not the purpose of this. Uh, I'm not autonomous. I'm not my own God. I'm not my own Lord. I'm made in the image of God, and I am a creature, and I am a subject of Christ the King. There are many who love that truth in part because of the strong preaching of the last 20 years, so praise God for that. There's been, uh, in the last couple years, last two to five years, I'll say, more broadly on the first of these, a strong pushback against social justice and the idea that the um, church should re-naturalize itself. We've been called together 
Jew and Gentile out of darkness. Some Bibles are more slippery than others. This, this, this wants to slip off my leg, so forgive me. Um, we've been called out of Jew and Gentile separation, ethnic separation, or whatever it may be, racial in the church, and, um, and that's glorious. But now what social justice and wokeness calls us to do is renaturalize. So the gospel denaturalizes us. What I mean is the gospel changes our categories such that we don't think first and foremost in terms of our, 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 our skin color or where we're from or our proclivities or whatever it may be, not just race or ethnicity, a whole range of, of human factors. Our first identifier, our identity is grounded in Christ. And so anyone who is in Christ, like us, by grace, is in the family of God and is our brother or sister. And so the gospel denaturalizes us, but wokeness and social justice and critical race theory renaturalizes us and says, no, 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 no. God may have given you a background. You and I would say that's God's providential background. That's not, that's not necessarily bad or evil or wrong or to have a certain skin color, be from a certain community. That, that, can, be, that can be part of your, your life and you can enjoy that and there can be good there. But fundamentally, um, these evil ideologies say that is the most important element of your identity, even before your identity in Christ. And so, thankfully, many voices have pushed against that. Bauckham, Carther, Bice, and many others we could name. And, um, and so, we give thanks to that. And then the third trend I'm thankful for is the pushback against global lockdowns. Um, the virus is a real virus, not, not the bubonic plague as it was said to be at all. And evil governments used a real virus to tremendously evil ends and still are to the current moment. I repeat myself about Canada. Many of, we need to pray for Canada. Many of our brothers and sisters still can't even, they can't even move. I, I mean, governments, we thought totalitarianism was like an artifact of communism in the 20th century. It is back with a vengeance it is a massive problem, but thankfully there are numerous voices, not nearly as many as there should have been, who are pushing back against it and taking a bold stand, and they must continue to take that stand. So in that, in saying what I just did, Brad, I think I gave both what I'm encouraged by and what I'm not encouraged by. Uh, one question follow-up to that related to what you're not encouraged by, the issue of, of all the, the racial animus now that has been introduced into the church and the constant drumbeat of systemic racism and that it, the whole church is just filled with racists and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so how, how do you navigate those issues in dealing with people who are sinners and have sinful attitudes towards their brothers? And it does, uh, in some cases, uh, originate from uh, a, a bias against the skin color or a bias against a certain community. Sure. Uh, you know, they came from the Midwest and, and, and that's, you know, that's, you know, that's just the Midwest. That's flyover country. There's, there, there, there's no, nothing good that can come out of there. Uh, <laughs> so on and so forth. So how do you navigate that? And then at the same time say, okay, that is a sin that we have to deal with, but it's, it's not the, the, this propaganda of the, the systemic racism idea. How do you deal with men like dealing with those issues? Yeah, great question. We have to recognize that the human heart naturally is partial. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that everybody is as partial as they, they possibly could be, and they're always acting in racism at every given moment, but it does mean that we, we have a natural tendency to be biased uh, against people who are different from us um, if we're not careful, if we're not watching ourselves. That's something we can slip into. So we know why racism and ethnocentrism and other isms that are evil exist, and we are um, very clear, we must be in the church, about the evil of um, certain elements of the American past, of slavery, of Jim Crow, of, of the wicked partiality that motivated real bona fide white supremacy. So in my book, Christianity and Wokeness, for example, I talk about that honestly and straightforwardly, and we must do that. Racism, furthermore, has not vanished. It hasn't magically gone away. It's, it's still something we have to watch, and ethnocentrism in our time. It's one of those things we have to be watchful for. But we also need to recognize that Karl Marx poisoned the well of the West. Karl Marx is the man who gave history its most successful bad idea. There are tens of millions of hearses lined up one after another behind Karl Marx's hearse. And what Karl Marx did economically is convince poor people that by definition, they were oppressed by the rich. And what took place in the 20th century through cultural Marxism and today through race Marxism is that that idea has been applied to majority cultures, not economically, but racially or ethnocentrically. Side note, there's no such thing biblically as race. There's one human race, Acts 17, 26, out of one man's blood, every human has come, or the human race. There is such a thing as uh, ethnicity. Ethne and laos are Greek terms used throughout the New Testament to speak of different ethnic peoples, peoples, in other words, who share a common culture uh, and a background. So um, race Marxism says, just like economic Marxism, there's a majority group, and the majority group automatically and naturally and always oppresses the minority group. And that's basically what critical race theory argues, wokeness argues, social justice argues. Therefore, anybody who is the racial majority is an oppressor, is a white supremacist. Um, so your average, as if there's an average white person or any group of persons, average, um, the average white person is at all times transmitting white supremacy and oppression of people of color, and we just need to say, that's a lie. That's, that's not biblical, that's not true. People of any skin color or any background could oppress one another, could be partial against other people. If they are, that's wicked. But that's not automatically the case. And what woke me up, no pun intended, to this whole issue was, um, I didn't, I didn't mean that. It must be the third session of this conference. Um, was hearing a friend, a dear friend, say that in a strong church that a lot of people here would know about, he was called um, a, basically a white supremacist and called to repent of his innate white supremacy just for being white from the pulpit. And this is a man who has adopted multiple children who have a different skin color than he does out of gospel love. He is not a man who's a racist in any actionable form. And so when I heard that story, and when I heard the church that was proclaiming such a false 
anti-gospel. Man, it woke me up, and I realized I wanted to write on this issue and try to, with what little steam I have, warn the church about this, this ideology that is uh, uh, Colossians 2.8, taking people captive. Because what happens is wokeness gets into a church, and it re-naturalizes the church, and people who used to see each other as brother or sister now, because only of skin color, not action, but are seeing each other as hostile to one another. And again, that's evil. That's wrong. And we thank you for all of the work that you have put into that. Your book, Christianity and Wokeness, uh, really was helpful in that way. So thank you for what you do in that. I do have one question. It's probably the most difficult one to answer. And uh, this will be our last one for uh, our, our time together. It's how can I watch the L.A. Lakers beat the, the Celtics but not compromise my godliness and witness? So I don't know how much time we need for this one, but we'll take the time. We, we've stumped him, finally. I'm just feeling oppression wash over me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say you already have compromised your witness. (laughs) Well, Owen, it's been great to have you here with our men today, and thank you for your ministry to us. Uh, Your preaching of the word was uh, very, very convicting, challenging, faithful, Uh, We will pray for you in in just a moment here and ask that the Lord would continue to use you as he has, that you would stand firm in the faith and and continue to be strong in uh, what you're doing. We're so very thankful for that. Before I pray for him, and we're going to sing a a song right at the end of Church Arise that will wrap everything up for the time that we've had together here. Just a few announcements. First of all, again, if you are here for the first time here at Grace Community Church and and you're not part of our church but you came for this, uh, we're so grateful that you you visited. And certainly if you have questions about the church, there are some men who are outside who are involved in, in ushering everyone around and making sure everybody finds what they need to find. Please ask any questions you have of that. But again, thank you for coming and uh, enjoying this morning together with us. Uh, secondly, uh, there was a registration fee for the, the conference, and that is because you guys are going to go and enjoy some urban cafe, some really good sandwiches uh, out on the patio. Uh, if you did not register, uh, we were not able to then count the lunches for you. So I have some, some bad news. If you did not register, we're going to ask you to wait until all the other guys who did register that they're able to go through and some of our volunteers to go through. And then if there's anything left over, obviously you can uh, help yourself. But uh, we want to save the food for those who let us know ahead of time that they were going to have lunch here on campus and uh, just be mindful of that. So again, thank you for coming this morning. It's been a wonderful time. I want to pray for you, Owen, now. And then I'll ask Bill to come up and close us in our final song together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the grace that you so abundantly shower upon us. And I thank you for how you have brought this morning together, how you've brought all of the men here this morning, and how you've brought Owen and uh, enabled him to minister your word to us. We pray that what he has spoken and the counsel he's given, the exposition that he's provided, that all of that would resound within our hearts and your spirit would take that truth and press it deeply 
for your glory's sake. Indeed, we, we do long and, and, and desire to be the kind of men that will reflect your purpose for us. Enable us to do that and use this teaching that we receive toward that end. We pray for Owen and his ministry through writing, through teaching in the seminary, training up men through his local church ministry, uh, through his podcast and all the different ways that you use him. We pray for continued strength, discernment. Use him as, as a choice instrument to help us all think through the issues that, are, uh, that surround us in our culture today. Use him to bring biblical wisdom to those, those situations. And we even pray for him as he then continues on from here uh, on Monday that you would grant him success in his endeavors for this next week. Father, we also give thanks for the food that we're going to enjoy. And in just a few moments, we're grateful for how you so wonderfully provide for us, even in the most practical ways. You are so good. And we have just begun to taste and experience that. And we certainly look forward to eternity where we will only continue to probe the depths and never find the bottom. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.